This is a talk by Joel titled, Transforming Emotions 3, Desire and Aversion, recorded October 2009 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, we are about to embark on the main practices that this retreat is about, and I want to say again a few words by way of a prologue. Traditionally, in the Tibetan tradition, these practices are given after a student has had what they call an introduction to the nature of mind. And that translates, in my terminology, to a Gnostic flash or a Gnostic episode, some glimpse of reality of the truth. And the initial glimpses that many people have are fragile. They can be easily overridden by our conditioning. And there are a number of reasons for this. One of the reasons is that almost always a Gnostic flash unleashes tremendous bliss. And there's a danger that the bliss is mistaken for the Gnosis, the Enlightenment, and then there develops a very subtle attachment to the bliss. And then when the bliss starts to dissipate, as eventually it must, it may stay around for days, weeks, even months, but eventually it starts to dissipate. And then a thought arises, oh my gosh, I'm losing my enlightenment. What's going on here? And if that thought is reified, then that will be followed by another thought, what can I do to get my enlightenment back? And da-da-da, the next thing you know, you're sucked right back into the story of I. There you are, an I with a problem that has to be solved. So that's one thing just to be very careful of. If you have a Gnostic flash or something, enjoy the bliss by all means, but do not mistake the bliss for enlightenment. The second problem is that bliss usually overshadows or wipes out for a time any other emotions arising. And so we go along and we think, oh, yes, I read about this. I'm now free of emotions all those emotions that cause me all this suffering all my life. And then when the bliss starts to subside, and then one day, you know, somebody says something nasty, and you get a little snarfy and angry, and oh my gosh, where'd that come from? And the same thing happens. I I must be losing my enlightenment. And then, uh, how can I get my enlightenment back? I can't let that anger arise. That'll ruin everything. And you're back into conflict and story and drama and everything else. So what the Tibetans are doing with these practices are actually trying to immediately get you to experience these emotions, to embrace them, and to recognize that they themselves are manifestation of Buddha nature. They're moods of God, if we want to put it that way, of the divine. It's part of the divine play, and we want to be able to see that. If we are discriminating, we will see that We can distinguish differences in the different moods that arise based on what we call emotions and that each has its own special qualities and then in the service of other beings we can make use of these qualities in skillful ways. So that's what the transforming of each afflicted emotion into wisdom energy is all about. But the initial or the main thing really is to not be thrown by the arising of emotions to look directly at them, see their true nature, which is a manifestation of the divine. 
Now, the uh, Buddhist lamas today, the ones in the West, do present these teachings to people who have not necessarily had a full-blown introduction to mind. They publish books about them, and you can go and buy, so it's no big secret or anything. And uh, I have taught them before, and I think they can be very valuable even to people who have not had a Gnostic flash. I think we can get some inkling of what it means that these emotions that we're afraid of, that we shun, uh, actually can be embraced and actually we can find ways to use them beneficially. First of all, because as we're going to see, in our lives, naturally, in the more unusual circumstances, this often shines through, even though we haven't been doing any practice, but oh, we can see this quality and it seems serendipitous to us when it happens, but actually what we're really seeing is the true nature of the emotion. The second thing is, if you have done this practice and you remember it, if you have a Gnostic flash and you happen to be someplace where there isn't a teacher who knows these practices to help you out, you will remember these practices and you will then not be afraid to experience emotions when they arise, at the very least. And when they do arise, maybe you'll remember to look directly at the emotion and see what's going on. And the last thing I want to say is, these are based on Tibetan Buddhist practices. You know the way you might go see a movie, and it says, uh, you know, based on a book by, and you know that means it's departed from the book. And uh, with reason. For instance, one of the traditional texts that contains these kinds of teachings is called The Flight of the Garuda, and you read through it, and it says things like, O son of the noble ones, now that you've been introduced to the nature of mind, if a thought of a hundred yaks rises in your mind and causes desire, look directly at the desire. Now, I have never coveted a hundred yaks. In this entire lifetime, not once has the thought of a hundred yaks risen in my mind and aroused desire. So, we need to adjust these practices a little bit as we move from one culture to another. Now, this morning we're going to try transforming afflicted desire and or sorrow into the discriminating wisdom of love and compassion. Here's what the Tibetan master Longchenpa says about it. When a thought of desire flickers in one, although it is an ordinary emotional defilement, by recognizing it and contemplating on it, it arises as the discriminative primordial wisdom of compassion. And even under delusion, we can get some appreciation of the wisdom quality about desire and sorrow. When we experience desire, the reason we experience desire, I should say, is because we feel cut off from the cosmos. We know something's wrong here, something's missing. And so in our delusion, we want to fill that hole that we feel is empty, there's something missing from, by acquiring possessions or people or whatever it is. We're trying to make ourselves 
whole again. We're trying to expand this boundary that isolates us and so it'll include you and it'll include the clock and it'll include the Ferrari and all these things. We never can achieve it, but the end of the project would be to own the whole world. Everything then would be included in my boundary. And then I would be back to my true self, we think. Of course, it's not the right way to go about it, and so we end up suffering. But we can see there's a wisdom in just desire. It's showing us, yes, it's right, it's true. There is something missing here. So if we could recognize that wisdom, ah, okay, then we don't have to be afraid of desire. Let's look into it more closely. Sorrow is the same thing on the other side. We have something and we lose it and we feel we've lost some part of ourself in a certain sense, which ultimately speaking is impossible, but because we feel limited and finite, then we can get and lose so again, there's a wisdom in that experience of sorrow. If we could liberate desire or sorrow, we would discover that this is the energy of discriminating wisdom of love and compassion. And we can get some idea of what that is about as well through ordinary experience. If you remember falling in love, I'm talking about the first month or two or three, not six months down the road or six years down the road, but in the first months, how attentive you become to your lover's needs and preferences and so forth. How you notice what they like because you want to please them. Oh, she takes her coffee with cream and one lump of sugar. So fine, I remember that. If I'm going to bring her breakfast in bed, I make sure I bring her that, you know. If I notice, oh, she likes classical music, I hide my heavy metal, I go out and buy some Mozart, (laughs) put it on when she comes for dinner. I'm really very, very attentive. This is discriminating wisdom. I'm discriminating what she likes, what she doesn't like, what she needs, what she doesn't need, in a very fine-grained way. Because I love Now, what makes it afflicted is that the reason I'm doing this is I do love, but it's afflicted love because I want to possess her. I want to win her. I want to own her. If I'm really afflicted, I want to control her. By the way, I'm speaking one side of the gender gap, but this is an equal opportunity uh, affliction. So, that's the only thing that makes it afflicted. Otherwise, the energy is... Quite beautiful. Now, if I dropped that self-centered agenda, it would become selfless discriminating wisdom. It would be completely for the other person's sake. I wouldn't have any agenda. I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter to me whether they love me back or not or whatever. And then I can't suffer. I can only suffer if I want something from the other person. And if they don't give it to me, I suffer. But if I have no personal agenda, my joy is just in the giving. Whether they love me back or not, that's irrelevant. With sorrow, I feel the loss. And what makes sorrow afflicted is, I'm the only one in the world who feels this sorrow. 
the pain of this. All the attention is centered on me. Boo-hoo-hoo. It degenerates into self-pity. And instead of making me more aware of other beings and their suffering and all that, it all gets focused on me. If I drop that eye at the center, then the energy of the sorrow goes out and I recognize all beings feel this. And it unites me to all beings. We are all united in our sorrow. It starts to have a sweet quality about it rather than a bitter quality. And it allows me then to act out of selfless compassion rather than a self-centered pulling in uh, to nurse my wound, so to speak. So, sometimes this is called purifying emotions. Purifying not anything in the inherent quality of the emotion, we purify it of what we have laid over it, which is our self-centeredness. That gets purified, but the energy of the emotion is what it is. Yes? Would you extend the um, desire part to non-people? I mean, you were wanting a Ferrari or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Would you just talk about that? Well, let's take a, a beautiful object you see in an antique store. And uh, you're going through and you see this really expensive, I don't know what. Uh, what? Violet. Violet, they're great. Stradivarius, there it is. Oh my God. And the, now watch what happens. How discriminating you get. You notice the wood. It's got this patina on it. It's got this shine. It's got this varnish that goes forever into the wood, you know? Uh, it's got the curves, this graceful curves. It's got the, the carved little, uh, what do you call those things uh, that you tune with? Pegs. Pegs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pegs. So if you're allowed to, you pick it up, you feel it, you feel the smoothness of it, you feel the warmth of the wood. I mean, all this is discriminating wisdom. Do you see what I'm talking about? And it comes from love. The pain comes from, i got to own this violin, and I can't afford it. And then I suffer. But you see the discrimination? And what's the suffering? It's not the appreciation of the beauty, it's the possessiveness. The I want to own that. That's what makes it afflicted. Is that? Okay, so, the trick is, when desire or sorrow arise, instead of focusing on the object, we focus on the emotion itself. The energy of the emotion itself. Here's Lady Soigel great uh, Tibetan Yojini. Know that desire and covetousness are discriminating awareness. You will find sensory distinction in no other place than a mind hungering for beautiful things, wanting the whole world. Look into the intrinsic freshness of your desire and there is the boundless light of Amitabha the Buddha of compassion. We're going to be quoting her a lot. Her teachings are radical. This is a poison in standard Buddhist terminology, desires, one of the five poisons. In 
she's saying you'll find discriminating wisdom of compassion in no other place than looking right into it. So, to prepare for this practice, the first thing we need to do is choose some object that will arouse desire. Because I said before, the emotion has to be present for us to transform it. We can't transform it in retrospect or just by thinking about it. It has to actually be there because we have to actually be able to look directly into it. So the kinds of things you could pick is uh, if there's some uh, human being that you find sexually attractive, that's usually a good one for a lot of people. And we're not violating our precept because we're using this in the service of wisdom, not just to distract ourselves or whatever. Uh, You could pick a violin. It could be an object, some sort of a beautiful object. It doesn't really matter, but we want to arouse as strong a desire as possible. That's the point. The stronger the desire, the easier it is to see its true nature. A little vague desire is harder to see its true nature. It's still there, but the stronger the desire, the better. If you want to use sorrow, pick someone or some object that you lost that caused you sorrow. And the same thing. You want to really try to bring up that sorrow. You want to be able to feel that sorrow. And you want to be able to recognize that it is the energy of compassion. That is what compassion is based on. We recognize sorrow as sorrow. Not my sorrow. Not your sorrow. But the sorrow of the world. It's not that it arouses our compassion. That feeling is the compassion. If you're not successful, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Just hang out in spacious awareness. And I'm sure some little desire will arise. You know, like, oh, I wish I was home curled up with a good book in front of the fireplace. That's fine. Work with that then. Then, uh, once you've chosen the object, remember the precept that applies to that object. So, for instance, if you're arousing desire in the form of lust, you want to remember sexual restraint. If you're uh, arousing desire in the form of greed for some object, you might want to remember integrity. Uh, If you're arousing sorrow, you might want to remember charity. You don't have to recite the precept, but just remember the intent of the precept. So you're doing the practice in the context of this precept. And then I'm going to guide you through one round here. And then we'll take a pee meditation. And then we'll come back. And the rest of the afternoon, um, or rest of the morning, I should say, we'll continue working with desire and sorrow. And you can either stay with the same uh, object or you can uh, switch and, you know, do like desire one round, sorrow another round, or switch from a person to an object or whatever you want to do here. Okay, so. Here we go.
So let's begin with a little concentration practice to calm our minds. Begin to let your attention expand into the field of bodily sensations. Attention to expand further to encompass the sound field. Tastes or smells arise, allow them to arise and pass away. to flow out into the visual field to encompass visual phenomena. attention to expand to include the mental field, letting thoughts arise and pass.
attention to expand throughout the total field of consciousness awareness. Allowing all phenomena to rise, pass, without any grasping or pushing away. effort to hold attention still, just relax into this vast, boundless, spacious awareness. is so vast and so empty it's like the sky it can accommodate even the most violent storm without suffering any harm Gently close your eyes and remember as vividly as possible some person or some object you desire or sorrow over. some situation of which you encountered this person or object until a strong feeling of desire or sorrow arises. imagination to bring this into focus as sharply as possible.
allow the memory, the thoughts, the story, the imagination which aroused this desire or sorrow to self-liberate and focus on the feeling, the emotion itself. Without the story. where in the body if it's localized you actually feel this emotion the heart, the stomach throat if it feels knotted in the body Breathe into it and release the energy of that emotion. Let it flow throughout the body-mind. Desire, see if you can feel that energy as pure discriminating wisdom, alert, loving. If it was sorrow, See if you can feel that energy as a sweet intimacy, a compassion for all beings without any judgment, good beings, bad beings, little beings, big beings, all suffer sorrow. this pure energy to dissolve back into the spacious awareness out of which it arose.
and rest in that sky of awareness. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Okay, this afternoon, we're going to try to transform fear and anger by recognizing their true nature as mirror-like wisdom of clarity. And here's what Longchampa says about them. Hatred arising toward an object is ordinary anger. By recognizing it, it arises as clarity, free from concepts. It is mirror-like, primordial wisdom. Now, he says, hatred arising toward an object is ordinary anger. By recognizing it, it arises as clarity free from concepts. We are aiming at trying to experience our emotions, the energy of our emotions, without labels, even labels like mirror-like wisdom. So that's just a pointing label to point to something. This is a more advanced version of trying to hear the sound of a bird without the label of bird. But I have to use sound of bird in order to get you to focus your attention on what we're trying to experience nakedly. And inevitably, in the beginning of this practice, when you get to the point where we are dropping the story of I and we're liberating the thoughts about the emotion and then we're looking directly at the emotion, the mind's going to come in and say, well, is this a mirror-like wisdom? It feels pretty clear. Uh, it's going to do that. That's what the mind's conditioned to do. Don't be fooled. The point is to see in the gap there, when you first go look at the energy, observe it without thought, see it right there, see if you can have that naked experience. And then the mind comes in and starts talking about it, fine, that's what the mind does, just let those thoughts liberate and stay with the experience of it. So this is why these preliminary practices we do with simple things like listening to bird calls or 
being in spacious awareness, undistracted mind. This is why these are all necessary foundations for these more advanced practices. We're really doing the same thing, but now we're doing it in a much more complex situation where there's a lot more distraction. But it's the same principle at work here. So, even under delusion, we can discern a certain wisdom in fear and anger. Under our petty, everyday fears lurks the existential fear of death. And our self-centered minds that believe that we are some self in here that is facing ultimately some annihilation is always on the lookout for something threatening it. And so whenever this energy arises, it interprets that this is my fear and I better do something about it. I better get out of here. Something's going to threaten me. However, if we stop to think about it, the death of the apparent self is the gateway to enlightenment. So when fear arises, it's actually an exit sign flashing that's saying this way is enlightenment. We don't recognize that. All we see is this way is the end to everything. Goodbye, I'm out of here. But if we recognize that, we can then start to have a different relationship to fear. And I'm not going to tell the story again, but those of you who know the story of Ramana Maharshi is the classic, clearest story I know of uh, someone who had this very experience, the fear of death, and instead of running away from it, ran into it and woke up right there at 17 years old. Saved him, you know, what? 10, 20, 30 years of traveling the spiritual path. Just because he could see that as, oh, this is the way to go. And then anger actually is interesting because anger provides us with the energy not to run away from fear. To turn around and face what's threatening us. Afflicted anger, when we're experiencing afflicted anger, we just want to destroy what's threatening us, lash out at it, beat it up, hurt it, injure it, maybe not even physically. We want to hurt it emotionally, verbally. But if we could take that same energy and use it, maybe that energy would provide us with the ability to actually face death. And here, you know, we're not talking about, in normal circumstances, biological death. We're not talking about if you're afraid of the traffic zipping by on a highway that you don't take precautions crossing it. But we are talking about facing the existential fact of death. So, if we could liberate these emotions of fear and anger, then instead of using them to protect this apparent self, perhaps we could use that energy to surrender that apparent self. We can get some idea of how fear and anger transform into mirror-like wisdom, specifically from situations that do crop up in most people's lives at some time. For instance, if you have ever been in a situation like a natural disaster, a car crash, some very dramatic situation of physical danger, and in that situation something happened where suddenly 
your self seem to disappear. Time slows down. You seem to know what to do. Everything's very peaceful, calm, spacious. You do what you have to do, uh, getting somebody out of a wreckage or moving people away from a car that's about to explode or whatever, with complete calm and with complete efficiency. A totally undistracted mind. Maybe thoughts, but the thoughts are just clear directions. Do this, do that, do that, and no problem. You just do it. Anybody have any experience like that? Yeah. Okay. That comes from fear being transformed into mirror-like wisdom of clarity. Unfortunately, we usually have to wait for some big disaster to make it happen. But it's a beautiful state, isn't it? And then people are amazed afterwards. And it, it seems like it's just serendipitous. But if you look at it, what happened? The little self was gone for that period of time. There was just consciousness and there was just this wisdom energy manifesting, if we want to describe it in Tibetan terms. The same thing can happen with anger. In uh, extraordinary situations, as in combat, when soldiers see their buddies get killed and stuff, and they get this so much anger, again, it wipes out any sense of self. They do extraordinary things. But we can get some sense of it if you just watch when you get really angry at somebody. And you watch your mind. It will be obsessed with that one little bit of story there. How could they have said that to me? I don't know, no, no, no. So there is a little spinning story at the center of this, but all around it is, is real clarity. Your mind isn't drifting off about this or that or, you know, whatever, is it? It's clear as a bell. I mean, you know that son of a bitch did that. I mean, it's just absolute perfect clarity there. So uh, we can see this. We work, you know, for hours sitting on a meditation pillow or in a chair trying to concentrate on a mantra, you know, or the breath and, and get this kind of clarity. Undistracted mind and this and that. It's really difficult. But boy, if anger is present, it's not difficult at all. The only problem with it is the little story in there is I'm going to get even, I'm going to get that son of a bitch. And so it's not a wisdom energy. It's a destructive energy. But minus that story, take that story out of there and you have beautiful clarity. You see what I'm talking about? Is everybody following this? So you wouldn't want to be without anger. If you were without anger, you would never have any clarity. I mean, the energy of anger. See, our English language just doesn't have words for this. Anger, fear, uh, greed, these emotions come with built-in negative connotation. We don't have a way to talk about them, really, uh, in our vocabulary that communicates this. That's why I keep coming back to this idea of pure energy. So... Um, the way, of course, we transform fear and anger is we have to arouse an emotion of fear or anger and we have to look directly into it and we have to let the story that arouses it all self-liberate and then the story is what tells us i got to run away, i got to attack, i got to do this. That all vanishes 
And there's this energy. Here's what Lady Soigel says about it. Know that aggression and malice are mirror-like awareness itself. Radiance and clarity have no other source than a hostile mind filled with anger and enmity. Look into your anger and there's the strength of diamond being, Vajrasattva, Buddha of purification. See, these are powerful teachings. And you can see how they can be terribly misconstrued. You know, anything goes. You can just go around being an angry person and that's fine, that's what you should do. So we have to really understand this because it's really about transforming this energy, not about letting it all hang out, doing what comes natural. Well, that's just the way I feel, so you, you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the first thing we need to do then is to choose an object to practice with, just like we did with transforming desire and sorrow. So we need to pick some person or situation that causes us to be angry or that causes us fear. We need to be able to recall it very vividly to arouse the emotions there. We need to remember our precept and if it's anger we're going to be working with, we need to remember the precept of harmlessness that we're not going to act out any kind of afflicted emotion. And if it's fear... Probably self-discipline is the one that applies because that's the one about not uh, indulging in escapist entertainments and stuff to get away from all that. So we don't want to be running away from our fear. So the first round, I'm going to guide you as before. And then we'll take a pee meditation and then we'll come back. And the rest of the afternoon, we'll continue working with fear and anger. Okay? Here we go. So let's begin with concentration. Stabilize our attention. Focus on your breath or whatever meditation object you're using.
Okay, let's expand the tension into the field of bodily sensations. expand the tension to include the sound field, whatever sounds are arising and passing. detect any smells or tastes, allow them to arise and pass. Expand the tension even further out into the visual field. Expand attention to become aware of phenomena in the mental field, thoughts, images, memories. attention to flow into the total field of consciousness awareness. To let whatever phenomena arise and pass without any grasping or pushing away, 
experiencing all phenomena nakedly, just as they are. any effort to hold attention still, surrender that and relax into the vast down the sky of awareness. Now gently close your eyes and call to mind as vividly as possible some person or situation that caused you to become angry or fearful. Recall in detail what happened until you feel a strong sense of anger or fear. When a strong feeling of anger or fear is present, allow the thoughts, memories, images that aroused it to self-liberate. Keep the attention on the feeling itself. 
right, to locate where in the body is the epicenter of this feeling. Stomach, heart, head. Feel a nodding of this energy, breathe into it, release it, but stay with the energy. Let it fill the body mind. This is the clear, pristine energy of mirror-like wisdom. this energy to dissolve back into the ocean of consciousness from which it arose. and relax into that ocean of spacious awareness.
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.